This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Chris Perkins, welcome back, man. Hey, Ash, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Obviously... Lots happening right now. Lots going on. Yeah, it feels, it definitely feels like spring, doesn't it? It feels like spring in crypto markets, man. I hate to start with the obvious here, uh, but man, let's take a look at what's happening in price. Uh, obviously, lots of people uh, focusing on this right now. Bitcoin back over 30,000, Ethereum back over 1,900. Lots of interesting stuff happening in your markets right now. What's your take on all this big picture? Yeah, there seems to be ongoing momentum in the crypto in the crypto space, and I think that's for a number of different reasons. If, if you step back, in the last six months, Bitcoin is actually up forty percent, uh, and and if you look at something like the Nasdaq as a proxy for tech, it's up about fourteen percent. So crypto seems to be leading the way, um, and I think there's a few reasons why that narrative remains very strong. I think one of those things is obviously very correlated to the macroeconomic inputs that we're seeing, um, and even as we, as we looked in back last year, it wasn't like, you know, regulatory action that, that moved the price, it was macro. And we continue to see uh, issues around dollar. Dollar strength looks to be coming off. It looks, looks to be weakening. Um, and this inverted interest rate curve is putting a lot of pressure, I think, on the banking sector that we've seen over and over again. And, and my personal read, having worked at a bank for many years, is that, you know, we're not through this yet. Uh, as long as the curve, the interest rate curve stays inverted as it is, you're going to see continued pressure uh, deposit pressure um, that where, where you're going to see assets moving into things like money market funds, uh, and that's going to put continued pressure on the banking sector. Moreover, I think, you know, and I, I've been in these rooms where these conversations have happened. I think the regulators are going to take a lot of action after what they learned from this last crisis and potentially apply much more strict stress tests to the banks, including the GSIBs. Um, I mean, could you imagine when you're trying to think about the amount of fractional reserves that you're supposed to hold? Um, the regulator coming in and say, okay, I need you to give me a new scenario that you're going to lose 35 to 40% of your assets in 36 hours. How much capital do you have to hold? Or applying new stress tests to the community banks and then saying, well, wait a second, if we apply them to the community banks, the GSIBs have to be even held to higher standards. So that continues to put pressure. And, and I think the only way that that pressure to, to abate is through probably not, tight, not tightening rates as much as we've seen in the past. And that's going to play right into the crypto narrative. Um, as we know, you know, Bitcoin um, prevails as, as the dollar weakens, and um, it looks like there's going to be um, less tightening going on in the future. Well, this is really interesting because there's so much there to talk about, so much there to unpack. Uh, but it's almost like you could say it's a grudge match between what's happening in macro and what's happening on the regulatory front. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about rates. Uh, two's tens 
curve upside down now more than 60 basis points on my screen. Uh, this is uh, this is uh, 10s minus 2s in terms of yield, uh, negative uh, to 60 basis points, significant there. And yet, at the same time, we have these uh, macro uh, head, well, we have these uh, sort of macro tailwinds. We have the regulatory uh, headwinds, really a kind of a weird situation where you have these two things moving in opposite directions. It looks like macro is winning. Yeah, I think so. And I think we also oftentimes have tunnel vision around what's happening in, in the United States. Uh, we have yeah. a team in Hong Kong right now. And I got a call from one of my guys this morning. And he's just like, my gosh, the amount of energy that I'm seeing over here is unbelievable. And so again, as the US, you know, continues to, I guess, go through this hang, this post FTX hangover, other jurisdictions aren't waiting. Um, you know, in Europe, we have MICA coming out this month in April. Right. We have the UK following. We have Singapore saying, uh-oh, Hong Kong's coming out of its shell. So everyone seems to be moving forward. Um, also, we're seeing a lot of momentum out of uh, the UAE as well, Dubai and Abu Dhabi with, with very strong regimes. And so remember, crypto is also very global, and we're seeing a lot of strength overseas. Um, and, and look, one of the things that concerns us is we continue to see a departure of, of developers into from the United States to other jurisdictions. Um, right. But look. As we said earlier, the macro picture remains strong, um, and, and macro seems to dominate price, um, and, and we expect for that trend to continue. Um, we should also talk about ETH, Ash. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we should just say, by the way, for uh, folks, we started in Medias Ray here. Chris Perkins, of course, is president and managing partner over at CoinFund, a digital investment firm and registered investment advisor, uh, which gives you the context and the position to uh, have this overview that we have on markets right now. Let's talk a little bit about ETH. Uh, obviously, Shanghai scheduled to go live tomorrow. This is a huge story. Chris, give us your sense on what this means. Yeah, first, you know, shout out to the Ethereum community, um, what they've been able to accomplish. In September, we had the merge, which was just an incredible transformation of, of Ethereum. And now with, with what we call Chappella, we'll, have, uh, we'll offer uh, participants the opportunity to actually withdraw their tokens uh, that have been staked. And so on the surface, people may say, oh my gosh, if these tokens have been locked up um, for quite a period of time in certain cases, well, they're just going to sell them and that's going to hurt the price. Um, I think when you step back and you strategically look at the progress and the strength of this community, um, actually your ability to withdraw your staked assets will be an unlock. And I think you'll see actually over time, uh, more folks actually staking their, their Ethereum uh, because obviously you have much more flexibility if you can withdraw the assets. And so personally, I think this is excellent for the, for the ecosystem. We continue to see monumental building. I mean, look what's going on in the, in the, in the, in the layer two space. Uh, yeah. The scaling that's now coming online, that's unlocking all different types of applications, whether it's, you know, gaming or DeFi, all things that, you know, you, where you need lower cost basis, higher transactions per second or TPS, as we call it. So, look, very, very excited about the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, it continues to have incredible momentum, I think. Chappella uh, or Shanghai plus Capella, I think that's going to. Let's, let's explain that, Chris, uh, while we're talking about it. Yeah, so, so there are, are two different um, EIPs that are going into effect, Shanghai and Capella. And I think uh, when you combine them, we call them Chappella. Uh, so I would uh, call out, uh, there's, there's a ton of research out there, but this will be another really nice unlock for Ethereum. And uh, again, incredible, incredible momentum in that space. Yeah, so what we're talking about really is generating native liquidity within the token itself. I believe the, the dominance index has risen 
on Ethereum from about 14% to around 20% where we are today. Uh, obviously a significant change in terms of the dominance, in terms of overall market capitalization and price, and Ethereum clearly a bullish sign. Yeah, again, uh, very excited about the ecosystem um, across the Layer 2 space as well. Um, and, and, and yeah, uh, I think generally, like we said earlier, it's springtime. Uh, we look forward to seeing continued momentum in the space, you know, despite some of the regulatory pressures that, that we've seen, and, and we could expect to see more of that as well. Yeah, let's talk more about regulatory pressure. Uh, you and I were talking about this a little bit this morning. SEC uh, is adding enforcement attorneys to their crypto division. I believe originally the plan was for 20, now the plan for 40. Uh, a significant ramp up in terms of regulatory enforcement firepower. What's your take on that? Why does it matter? Yeah, so we were really, we were really hoping that we would see legislation, and we've seen this ongoing these uh, like challenges between you know what is a security and what is not. Yeah. Um, even with recent proposals around legislation, we we never really got clarity on that. Um, look, in the aftermath of of FTX, I think the regulators, whether across the board, they know that they need to act. Um, and like it or not, I do think we're going to end up finding a new equilibrium um, at some point. Now, it takes a while to go through litigation. But the SEC, you know, based on you know public reporting, there's been a number of Wells notices that have come out. Um, you know, we've but seen let's that. Let's tell folks what a Wells notice is. Uh, it's an intention. Uh, it's an announcement from SEC. They send a Wells notice uh, to an entity, and essentially it's a, uh, it's a notification that there is impending enforcement action. Right. And so we're seeing ongoing uh, litigation happening across uh, Ripple, XRP. Uh, we know there's a case with uh, DCG as well. Now we're seeing, um, you know, Coinbase has, has a Wells notice uh, that they're navigating, um, Paxos as well. And so as you start looking at the scope of potential lit current litigation and potential litigation, um, you know, it, it's pretty obvious, you know, why you would see an, an increase in staff. You know, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. You, you, you'd rather see policy be defined from legislation. Um, and, you know, we are big believers in principles-based regulation. Um, and, you know, the one thing that is encouraging from my perspective is that we are, um, you know, we were named at, at CoinFund to something called the Global Markets Advisory Committee on the CFTC, and they will be launching a, a subcommittee focused specifically on digital assets. And so we think the time is, is more important than ever to engage with regulators, um, to help explain to them the nuances, uh, and much of what we do is nuanced. You know, you, you hate to see something as um, with the promise of crypto to be politicized, um, but our goal is to educate, engage, and try to get the right policy outcomes. Um, hopefully that will ultimately come from legislation. Yeah, there's so much there. There's so many layers, so much nuance to unpack uh, in what you just said. Obviously, this idea of regulation by enforcement, uh, you know, not the traditional standard rulemaking route where you can have principles-based uh, sort of replicable regulation uh, propounded in a way that allows other good actors in the space to at least understand what the expectations of regulators are uh, and therefore hopefully respond to it in a constructive way. Then you have this idea about the absence of legislation coming from Congress. And finally, the notion of a, a kind of regulatory competition that seems to be happening right now between SEC on one hand and CFTC on the other. It's interesting because you have suits from SEC claiming in effect that digital assets are securities, while simultaneously you have CFTC suits claiming, in fact, the opposite, that they are commodities. This is a very complicated environment. 
for entities in this space, particularly for those who are attempting to be good actors. Give us a little bit of a sense of how you understand all that complexity. Well, maybe one of the reasons for the, uh, the strength in Bitcoin is we know, the, in the United States at least, we know the regulatory consideration. It's a commodity. Um, and so it's, you know, it's very clear. I think there are, have been some questions on other assets. Um, it's interesting to note that the CFTC did come out in their action against Binance uh, and suggest that it, they asserted jurisdiction over Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, uh, and then uh, a couple of stable coins. Not, um, not just jurisdiction, but the, the claim uh, in plain language that they are in fact commodities. Oh, that's right. That's right. Which would, you know, result in their jurisdiction. And so, right. right. look, I think in order to deem something a security, there's a lot of work that has to go in and legal analysis around Howie. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the SEC, you know, you know, if they agree and they follow on with that suit and how it plays it out. But look, ultimately, I think a lot of this will play out um, probably in the courts uh, in the absence of that legislation. And then, you know, the thing that I've learned in crypto is that most crypto participants want to be regulated, right? We would love to have clear regulation. Our founders, our, our entrepreneurs would love to know the rules where they need to build, and then we would right. build that accordingly. And so like one thing that I'm going to be very focused on as I advance my dialogue um, within the various committees that I, that I participate in is how do we have, how do we come up with and agree on empirical measures for things such as decentralization? Right. So if a, if a protocol is truly decentralized um, and it would fall into or not truly decentralized, what would be those empirical measures upon which it would fall into one jurisdiction or the other? Like, but do, many, we, do we even know if that's the test? Right. That's the complexity around this. Right. So this is you're alluding to essentially the Hinman uh, standard, uh, this notion of sufficient decentralization. Uh, but do we really know if that's the test that SEC is using in the absence of legislation? You mentioned the Howey test. Let me just backfill uh, some of this information here so folks uh, who are not securities lawyers can follow along. Of course, many people have heard about what the Howey test is. The Howey test uh, is a test to determine whether or not something is or is not a security. Uh, and the general standard, and this is just an overview, obviously I'm not an attorney, not legal advice, uh, but the standards are four. There are four prongs to the Howey test. Uh, number one, an investment of money. Number two, in a common enterprise. Number three, with the expectation of profit. And number four, finally, to be derived from the efforts of others. You know, we're in terra incognita now, uh, trying to understand whether or not this notion of sufficient decentralization is something that SEC, uh, under the current regime, will in fact recognize as a defining characteristic of that which is not a security. There are just so many layers to all this. Uh, let Jump back in uh, and give us your take. Yeah, look, my goal would be to work for my portfolio companies uh, via positive engagement with the various regulators to say, okay, you know, let's work on empirical measures um, that that would assert that an, that, a, that an asset would be in one bucket or the other. At the end of the day, right, it shouldn't matter whether it's subject to SEC jurisdiction or CFTC jurisdiction, because the same principles should apply, right? It should be client protections, thoughtful disclosures, um, things of that nature um, that, frankly, um, you know, weren't followed in, in, in instances like FTX. And so how do we, in, 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 at a time when it shouldn't matter, let's focus on the principles and then let's give some clarity to our founders around, okay, what, what do I need to do? Or how do I structure my project so that it would go into one of these jurisdictions or the other so that I can go ahead and be compliant? Because in my mind, you know, the vast, vast preponderance of people I deal with want to be compliant. They want to follow the rules. They want to know what the rules are. Um, and, and I think that is how countries are trying to differentiate themselves right now, you know, starting with the Europeans and Mika you know, about to hit the official journal. 
Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Let me just say this, uh, just to give credence or at least voice uh, to what the official position is here of Chair Gensler and SEC. Uh, you've framed it extremely well in terms of what people in the space think, what they say. Uh, we've had these conversations here on Real Vision Crypto many times, of course. This idea uh, that people in the crypto space just want very clear, easily followed rules of the road uh, to understand how to navigate this. Uh, the position from Chair Gensler, at least as I understand it, based on his remarks, is essentially the rules of the road uh, have been the same uh, since the securities laws have been propounded in this country. Uh, come in and register, he says. Now, obviously, folks in the crypto space say there is no way to do that. But that's kind of the the almost the, the mental roadblock here uh, that people are trying to get by. Essentially, what you have is uh, the chair of the SEC saying, we know what the rules are. They're very clearly defined by federal courts and federal statutes. Uh, you can go back to the, the Act of 33, the Act of 34. That's the position uh, that the SEC chair has taken, uh, or at least that's my interpretation of it. Do you see it differently? Look, uh, it's it's a it's an interesting challenge. I think, like I talked about previously, um, due to some of these, uh, you know, in my experience, many of the protocols, you know, all of them, they're trying to be compliant. To the extent that there's a disagreement, I think that we'll find a new equilibrium in the courts. Uh, and, and I think we'll start getting some of that feedback, you know, fairly soon, uh, potentially with, with XRP. And that will help inform, I think, maybe the next generation uh, of, of regulations and, and statute that, that we'll abide by. I wish uh, we could get something, you know, from our elected officials via comprehensive, thoughtful, proactive right. legislation. But in the absence, we're, we're going to probably end up in this new equilibrium. And that finding that new equilibrium through the federal courts, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you mentioned XRP, Ripple. Obviously, this is a very closely watched lawsuit here in the United States and around the world. Uh, what are your thoughts about the current status of that, the implications, uh, and how broadly that ruling might or might not be interpreted in terms of the broader framework for the crypto space? It's a tough question, Ash. You know, I'm I'm not an expert um, in that case. Um, you know, you, you follow it because every time that you get something out of the courts, it will inform uh, and create case law, you know, around the future uh, of of the uh, of the rules that you have to go. And so, I think we're hearing that we should get some feedback um, in the near future, um, possibly this year. You, you, the thing with courts is you you really never know. Um, you don't know how they're going to come out, how they're going to rule, right. and, and you don't also don't know the timing. So it's all things that we're going to watching. We're going to watch, and as we um, you know get those outputs, we'll be able to. It'll help inform our perspective a little bit further but at the end of the day like we want to be compliant uh we want to follow the rules and we want to position this technology in a way that we can compete on a global scale yeah talking about things that no one ever knows for certain let's jump back to price here uh, obviously bitcoin above thirty thousand. uh you know this definitely focuses the attention of the number go up crowd. It's an, it's a, you know, it's a four zeros at the end with a three in the beginning. This is something that folks focus on here. Uh, let's talk about what you see some of those potential drivers as you mentioned the macro environment, the macro space. Talk a little bit about what some of those specific drivers are that you see from a macro perspective driving price higher right now. Yeah, I think a lot of crypto people will talk about uh, the money printer. Right, and when is the money printer coming back on? Um, and you know, as we talked about earlier, Ash, you know, I don't know if you did you see uh, Balaji's uh, uh, his uh, prediction about a million dollar Bitcoin here coming up in three months. In ninety days. 
Yeah, so we're, we're getting there. My sense is we're probably not going to make it to a million, but I think the narrative is, is that because of this pressure that we continue to see in the space, um, particularly if you look at, at some of the stress in the banking sector, um, you know, I'm not going to say that the, the money printer is going to go burr like you hear on Twitter, but there, there is def definitely an expectation that, um, you know, this, this very, very hawkish race, race, race regime that we've been seeing, um, there needs to be a change um, because they're starting to see pressure really build up on the system. And again, that really let's, plays into the, the, the strength of crypto. Let's talk about that and let's explain it uh, and not take for granted that anyone has experience in this. Uh, let's first talk about and define and quantify what's happening in the banking sector, what some of those potential instabilities might be, and then why, particularly for people who don't have backgrounds in macro, we might then see accommodative monetary policy uh, to attempt to support the banking sector and why that might be, as you say, money printer go burr. Yeah, so I think based on a lot of legacy regulations, including Basel, um, banks had invested in uh, long-dated treasury bonds, and a lot of those treasury bonds are, were held to maturity, so they didn't have to mark them to market. And, and, and that was fine. Um, the problem is, is as the rates curve started inverting um, and short-term money market rates went up, um, I'm, I'm oversimplifying by far, uh, you saw a departure. Um, it, well, first off, banks started taking um, some losses as they as deposits started to leave. Uh, we saw that with Silicon Valley Bank. And as those losses were crystallized, um, they had to remark that book. And what, what happened was um, you had a lot of concern around the banking sector and the fact that a lot of losses had built up because um, as, with, as, as those assets had to be pulled out, the long-dated treasuries were marked down and, and banks had a lot of losses on their books. Now, in the context of this, of this inverted rates curve, now we're seeing money markets that are paying pretty, pretty nice rates. If you take a dollar and you invest it in a bank or you put it in a money market fund, those, the difference in those rates are very material. And so now, post this little crisis, we continue to see, we believe, outflows out of the banking sector and those deposits into things such as money market funds. And that's going to hurt over time bank business models, um, and it's going to put a continued pressure um, because of that inverted rates curve. And so, you know, my sense right. is that over time, um, you know, it's going to put a ton of pressure on banks. And then, of course, you know, the banks are going to have to be reserve even more capital against the stresses that we saw, including, you know, the rate stresses that we saw, something called duration risk on the, on, as um, the long-dated treasuries um, came under pressure uh, for price. And so, um, you know, the, the Fed's probably going to have to take that into consideration uh, in the rates regime. Um, and to the extent that rates come down and the dollar becomes more weak, uh, crypto tends to respond very positively. Yeah. And I mean, the key driver here, I'm not sure if we can bring this chart up, but I'm looking at effective federal funds rate. Uh, and what you see, obviously, from the 2008 period uh, to about 2016 is interest rates at or near the zero lower bound. Uh, the 2016 through 2019 regime, uh, a slow increase in rates, and then we get COVID and boom, we're back down to zero for 2020 uh, through uh, mid-2022. Uh, and now we're in this position where about a year ago, uh, almost exactly, in fact, uh, we start to see this steep increase in rates, effective federal funds rate uh, coming up, well, the upper limit now at, at, at 5%, 475 to 500 basis points uh, on the federal funds rate target 
This obviously is the driver of everything that you've just discussed, this idea of rates going down to zero, ultra-accommodative monetary policy, and then inflation rears uh, its incredibly ugly head as we've seen the pain that that's caused throughout the system. Uh, and the, the question right now, the open question on the table, what's causing these headwinds uh, that are essentially uh, the driver for this very sort of uh, you know detailed nuanced process that unfolds is the perception that the Fed is going to have to loosen because uh, as they say in the business, the Fed will hike until things break. Well, a lot of stuff broke. That, that, that's what we're dealing with right now, Ash. So uh, again, if, but if you start looking back at some of the fundamentals going on in crypto, it's not just about, um, hey, it's crypto, so it's going to do great because macro is, is shifting. Now that's a national input, but we're seeing real building happening across the board, you know, going back to, you know, we've got venture strategies. We continue to see incredible projects being built, incredible founders coming to the table. You know, even in the absence of great regulatory clarity, we're seeing building happening, ton of infrastructure projects coming online, building faster, uh, cheaper, more effective blockchains, building out infrastructure around messaging. We're seeing uh, gaming come online. I think I saw a release that over 700 games were released in the last year or so. Um, Web3 gaming will, will be a game changer. We're seeing DeFi springing back to life. Um, yeah, we Treasury recently put out a piece on on, on DeFi, we should talk about it, but but we're seeing incredible building and and you know despite you know the macro noise, uh, despite regulatory things happening, building is happening, building continues to to occur, and we're seeing value being created every single day. But we can talk about the uh, Treasury report in just a minute, uh, but let's talk a little bit about more in detail about the venture fund side of what you guys do, what you see. What do you feel the most enthusiasm about? Where is your conviction highest right now in this space? You mentioned infrastructure, you mentioned messaging. Uh, what are the types of applications out there, the types of projects and protocols out there uh, that you see that you have a high conviction in and why? Yeah, you know, like I've said in the past, we look across numerous different verticals all across Web3 and our strategies. We will look at um, things such as gaming to infrastructure, to DAOs, the intersection of, of uh, AI and blockchain is fascinating. My, my partner, our founder, Jake Brugman, is an absolute thought leader on there. Um, we put out a blog a while back, and, and that's an area of exploration that's going we believe is going to be just massive. Uh, we'll look at the intersection of things such as ESG and blockchain. Um, look, from an infrastructure perspective, we, we're seeing numerous projects, um, layer two scaling, we're seeing bridging capabilities, uh, cross-chain interoperability, uh, a ton of building going on there. Um, and, and so that I think we recently announced uh, a, a round that we led with a company called LiFi, uh, which is fantastic. The gaming sector, as I mentioned, um, you know, there's been this ongoing challenge with, um, you know, I, th I think gaming came into the space, a lot of gamers revolted, um, but now I think there's, you're starting to see products being shipped and user experience is really being improved. Um, and so uh, we just had a had one of our partners out at a, at a conference out in California. Incredible momentum in that space as well. Um, on the AI side, you know, the amount of discussion uh, and, and controversy that we're starting to see emerge in AI. Yeah. Look, I think it's a lot like crypto. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's here, right? 
The question is, is how do we use it? How do we engage with it? How do we make our lives better using AI? And we believe blockchain is going to have a, a really important point uh, to making this right. You know, do you want to see AI being built on closed systems and trained in the interest of centralized um, entities? Or do you want to see AI being built in a way that's more open source um, and, and, and leverages decentralized technologies? You know, obviously we prefer the latter. And so uh, I think this, these discussions um, and this intersection is going to be just an incredibly exciting uh, part of the future. And uh, it's, it's, it's an area that we're focusing on quite a bit. Hey, let's talk a little bit about that intersection. Uh, what do you see that looking like? What are the next steps? Uh, and what do you think, if there will be one, the next killer application could be for that union, that intersection between BlockFi, uh, between, excuse me, between blockchain technology uh, and AI tech? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, you almost think about it in terms of, you know, we're human beings, we can walk from point A to point B. But then we came up with horses, we could do a little bit better. And then we came with cars, we can go really, really fast. And almost AI is going to help us, you know, not with, with being able to move, but with our brains, right? Um, we have these iPhones now that we look at all the time and, and they help us, you know, access data. We're going to take that to the next level. We're going to, we're going to be able to, to use AI to assist us to do things faster, cheaper, and more effectively. Again, when, when you think about it in the context of blockchain um, and, and decentralized and open source, um, you know, the technology will hold promise to the extent that the data is, is available, opened, and, and trained in a very transparent manner. All these principles are really blockchain decentralization um, principles, things like transparency and inclusivity. And so as we have that open source transparent means to, to bring data together and train it, probably more effective and potentially more, hopefully more ethical uh, than, than doing that training in, in closed-end systems, you know, run by a corporation to try to present certain outputs. So uh, it's certainly an exciting time and um, it's something that we're going to continue to focus on. We, you know, we have a, a blog on our website. If people want to look at it. Uh, we would love to engage with them there. We did a uh, Twitter spaces last week as well on our weekly Twitter spaces, uh, which is recorded. Uh, mm. It's a great conversation again with Jake Brookman. Are there any specific applications that you think are particularly promising between uh, this sort of intersection of uh, blockchain technology and AI? One of the things that I've seen uh, discussed quite a bit is the idea of automated code audits and enhancing essentially the security of blockchains by having automated systems that can go through and search for vulnerabilities. I guess that becomes almost an arms race between the good guys and the bad guys uh, attempting to find those vulnerabilities and exploit them first. But I'm curious if you have a view on potential applications of AI in the blockchain space. Uh, gosh, I think it, it's going to be absolutely massive. I think you're sure at a basic level, you'll be able, you know, you hear people talking about, oh, you don't need to learn to code anymore because, you know, you just tell the AI to code for you. Uh, I don't know if that's the best advice that I would give my kid. Uh, but but think if, if you can yeah. be able to create environments, whether it's, you know, look look for bugs and 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 identify those things, absolutely awesome use case. But what if you thought bigger and you said, okay, um, make me a game um, uh, and, and I want it to have these properties and these specific people and, and I want it to be able to do this. Um, I think the time to market with many of these applications will be increased very, very, um, will be significantly increased, right? Because, right. you know, like if you think about gaming, it takes years often to bring a good game to the extent that you're able to do something and say, well, I want this customized experience go. I mean, we've all played with GPT-4. 
it's it's amazing how fast um, yeah. you know you can produce and ship um, things, and, and and it's only going to get better. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Yeah, I've been asking uh, GPT-4 to write code, and it's pretty extraordinary to see just how quickly it cranks it out and how thoroughly commented it is. That's a very sort of strange aspect of it. Look, I don't think uh, anybody's kids uh, today are going to need to worry about not uh, having tech skills, not having coding skills. Maybe our grandchildren uh, won't need them anymore. But for the time being, uh, I think it's something that's uh, that's not going away anytime Soon, you know, there's this interesting phrase that I keep hearing from people in the AI space, and it's clearly a marketing phrase, right? Like it's clearly something that they're using uh, to try and reduce the anxiety around AI. And the phrase goes like this, you know, AI isn't going to take your job, uh, but someone who knows AI may. And I think like, look, obviously there's a sort of nakedly self-serving element in that, right? Which is come learn our technology so that you don't get replaced. The reality is uh, this technology is going to be massively labor saving, uh, but uh, you know that means if you if you work in a department uh, and there are ten lawyers, maybe there there are three or four, and they're all going to be using AI. This clearly presents some significant macroeconomic challenges uh, in terms of uh, in terms of employment, uh, in terms of pricing. I mean, all these sort of macroeconomic variables are going to get reshuffled by this pretty dramatically. Uh, but in the short term, this isn't the kind of thing that's going to eliminate entire categories of jobs. Uh, but it certainly looks, at least based on my experience of uh, reading about it, reading the research and playing around with it, it certainly seems as though it's going to dramatically change job descriptions in the near term. You know, when we were growing up, Ash, we didn't have YouTube content creators as a profession, right? Um, I, I think to your point, there, there's going to be an entire new, uh, new there are going to be entire new uh, employment opportunities for people who can leverage AI um, to, to gain outputs. Like you see these people who are able to interface so naturally with AI and, and unpack new applications that many of us haven't even thought of. I think you're going to see it unlock, you know, not only... Um, I think there'll be a lot of employment opportunities, not just risk. Yeah, totally new jobs, totally new types of applications for it. And by the way, it also bears repeating. What we're looking at right now is like version 0.0.1. Uh, this technology is going to get a lot better, a lot more elegant, a lot faster, uh, and it's going to happen very quickly. I mean, it's just incredible how quickly ChatGPT, uh, a phrase that no one had heard outside of AI, you know, maybe six months ago now, suddenly is the most important story in the technology world. Yeah, totally. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. So let's jump back here and talk a little bit uh, about something you mentioned earlier, which is uh, the DeFi report from Treasury. Interesting uh, story there. And if some uh, folks have been framing it as a warning shot, uh, you know, obviously something that Treasury has reasserted the uh, necessity, the primacy of AML KYC. What's your take, by the way, for those who don't know, who haven't worked in banking, that's anti-money laundering, know your client. Uh, talk a little bit about what your interpretations were on that report. And first, give a brief overview for folks who may not have seen it yet. Yeah, sure, Ash. So uh, Treasury is responsible for um, things such as OFAC. And you know, one of the things that they want to make sure is that- That's the Office of Foreign yes, Asset Control, yep. the, the primary sanctions regulator here in the United States at Treasury. Thanks. Thanks for that. And one thing that, you know, I think most people don't want is you don't want to get money into the hands of, <clears throat> of terrorists and bad people. And, you know, I was a U.S. Marine. Uh, I was on the wrong side of, you know, plenty of terrorist attacks. I've had friends that are killed by terrorists. I, I don't like it when uh, terrorists have money. And, and I saw some 
reports, you know, within, in, within the recent CFTC um, suit against Binance where there's talk about, well, you know, it only costs, you can barely buy an AK with that. But if you've been on the other side of that AK like I have, you just don't like it when, when they have, you know, when they're funded with any amount of money. So right. that said, um, Treasury did an analysis of DeFi and they ascertained that, yes, you know, we are seeing some bad actors using DeFi. And, you know, the point is, is like, okay, we have, I totally appreciate that. But guess what? Hate to break it. Terrorists also use the internet. Uh, and they also use dollars as well. And so how do we step back and look at the nuance uh, of this? And there were some really good things in the Treasury report. They talked about how can we use uh, ZK proofs or zero knowledge proofs, um, you know, this, this technology that we're seeing take hold at a rapid pace in Web3. Um, Explain what that is for folks who may not know, because it's a very powerful technology. Yeah, so ZK proofs are, are a way um, where you can cryptographically prove something without revealing the contents um, on the chain, uh, in, in short. And so you can think about an application where um, a person needs to certify themselves uh, as credentialized or has their, their, their um, AML or KYC checked. Um, and they can do that without revealing all their personal information to everyone. And, and you can use that ZK proof to represent um, right. throughout the system effectively that, that they are KYC. So that they I think that about this as, as in maybe the simplest terms is uh, being able to demonstrate uh, that you know something without revealing what that something is. One of the metaphors that you hear for this uh, is a driver's license when you have to go into a bar and prove that you're 21. Not that that's happened to me for uh, a while, but when you have to go in and prove you're 21, you have to show your license, right? And it shows your, your address, it shows your uh, date of birth. Uh, it shows a lot of things about you, your driver's license number that you might not want to reveal. Uh, so the metaphor here is what you could do is just have a, a system that sits between the bouncer and the driver's license that it just says, hey, yep, this guy is 21, this gal is 21, go on in. And that's kind of the metaphor that we use. By the way, I had a conversation with Silvio McCalley uh, about this, uh, who works uh, on the project Algorand right now, but in the 1980s, I believe, was one of the mathematicians who actually created the mathematics around found the foundations of zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, so it's obviously a rich topic. Yeah, totally. So anyway, Treasury talked about um, the fact that we need to be very mindful. Um, there's a lot of talk about this centralized versus decentralized. They talk about DeFi services is really not following in certain cases best in class. I think for most of the crypto native folks, it's very important to separate people and entities from protocols. And that's one thing that we'll continue to talk through. You know, a protocol, you know, is a protocol. It's like the internet. Um, if a person violates a law, it's one thing, but how, do, how can a protocol, how can computer code viol violate anything? So that's something that we're going to have to unpack and, and work with them in time. The other thing that's important to me to note is that, you know, like it or not, DeFi right now is pretty small. It's like $40 billion in total value locked, which is one measure that we look at. And of that, if you look at Chainalysis, I think they said that 0.24% of all transactions were illicit. And so when you step back, the actual amount of nefarious activities, pretty small in DeFi compared to where we're seeing it in other markets. Um, and so like what I wanna do is make sure that people understand, look, this is something that's important. We need to get it right. We need to, to regulate entities and we need to regulate people. Um, we need to make sure we're very mindful of, of, of code and, and, and how it's very difficult to regulate you know, code itself. But the more important thing is like, we're also seeing a lot of development across the globe um, with this thing we called CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. Um, and as non-US adversaries um, start building these things, you know, the capability to evade a sanctions regime is much, much greater 
um, if a if a government is building a, a a CBDC, rather than you know messing around with this tiny uh, forty billion TVL DeFi industry. So right. again, let's really focus on first principles, and and you know that's a much bigger threat. Um, and, and my personal conclusion is that stable coins, private stable coins. Um, are the solution here. Um, we have such an opportunity as a country uh, to invest in private stable coins. It's great for the issuer um, because people give you money, you buy those treasuries, those short dated treasuries, which you know will make you nice coupon. You issue a token, which that user can then move, move throughout the world, um, reducing remittances by like 80%. Um, and it's it, in many cases it's programmable. And, and if you're sitting in, in a developing country, would you rather have dollars or would you rather have, you know, currency of one of our adversaries, I'd say you probably want dollars. So I think, um, and I'm hopeful that policymakers will focus on um, good stablecoin legislation and, and regulation as a means to um, to really address the threat um, to sanctions, which I think are, are, non, are adversarial uh, CBDCs. And by the way, it works much better when there's a little bit of juice, a little bit of yield in those treasuries. Totally, totally. <laughs> hey, just to underline something that you said earlier about the size, uh, 40 billion TVL total value locked in DeFi. Just to give people a little bit of context on this, uh, the market cap of Apple right now is two and a half trillion dollars. Uh, so, you know, obviously putting it in context, I know it's a very large stock, but it is just one uh, stock. And and when you think about the scale uh, of what's happening uh, elsewhere, this is still relatively small. Uh, by the way, another interesting point that the that the report makes from Treasury uh, is that most of the illicit activity certainly takes place in banknotes and currencies and not uh, in uh, DeFi applications. So it's interesting because you have this very small, uh, obviously potential for a great deal of growth for both good and ill. Yeah, I, I, I think that's 100% right. And um, look, we're also seeing very exciting technologies coming online. Uh, they talked about uh, the ZK um, technology that people are using. This whole concept of, of certified credentials um, is, is something that I think will take hold and will drive liquidity. There, there are two ways that we're seeing that take hold. One is via things such as like soulbound NFTs, where you can represent um, throughout the ecosystem that you are a good actor. Or we're also seeing, you know, the, the launch of of ecosystems. Like, you know, I know Avalanche has their subnets. They had a release yesterday um, called Evergreen, where they're bringing in uh, institutional counterparties, which have gone through those compliance checks. And so that's another theme that we continue to see. I think uh, over time, you know, you'll definitely see see some liquidity migrate to, uh, to to those types of fully um, compliant type ecosystems. Yeah, by the way, talking about stablecoins, something that's just breaking here as we have this conversation around noon Eastern time uh, is the IMF uh, putting out statement about the notion that essentially that stablecoins and what they call crypto conglomerates, by the way, this is breaking news. I'm just reading this uh, off the news feed right now. This is uh, Coindesk reporting on this. Uh, should have bank style capital requirements in addition to AML KYC. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it certainly sounds like IMF is uh, implying here uh, that, the, that the effective operating standards that apply uh, to traditional finance need to be applied in the digital asset space. You know, they say same risk, same regulation. I don't agree with that. I think it's the same principles that need to be followed. That doesn't entirely make sense to me. And, and I would really like to understand the nuance because typically we have a fractional banking system where most of the stable coins that, you know, I see are fully reserved. And so, you know, I personally probably would not want to apply uh, a banking model to stable coins. I would like to see something that's much more reserved. 
Um, and so, you know, that's where the nuance comes in. And I think um, would would love to have that conversation with some other experts to see how we can get it right. Um, but but generally speaking, I don't think there's a ton of disagreement around making sure that if you're issuing a stable coin, uh, that those assets are backed and safe. Now we saw some issues uh, recently with this with this banking uh, turmoil, where one of the providers had a bunch of their capital locked up in a bank. Um, it wasn't the stablecoin issuer that this is this is uh, USDC that you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the issue was around you know SVB weakness. So you know we need to find a way to make sure that assets that you know are collected are safe, whether they're using traditional rails or um, crypto rails. You know, we're also seeing, you know, the NEC said um, on the 27th of January, they want to keep crypto and banking separate. Um, again, I, I see it a little bit differently. I see we need to focus on the same principles of better technology, um, more inclusive technology, more transparent technology. So I'm still trying to get my head around that one. Uh, but my initial blush is no, we, we, we don't want the same rules to apply to stablecoin issuers and banks. You know, we can even make those rules even more robust and clear. Um, and, uh, you know, we've seen some weakness in, in banking sector, in the banking sector recently. Don't want to introduce that to stable coins. Yeah. And by the way, we should say that the NEC is the National Economic Council. Uh, this is council that advises the president. Uh, it is seen as part of the executive branch. And so uh, the question is, to what extent that notion of keeping crypto separate from the banking system is a position that is represented by the Biden administration? Yeah. And uh, again, same risk, same regulation. Not doesn't really make sense because they don't oftentimes um, they're not the same. But let's focus on principles, and um, you know, hopefully, we get to a good place. Hey, a little bit of clarity on that uh, IMF statement. I think it's part. So right now, for for folks who don't follow the macro side, there are meetings taking place in Washington D.C. International Monetary Fund every year uh, does these April meetings, and this is a report that they published. It's called the GFSR. At least that's how it's known in the space. The Global Financial Stability Report. Uh, this has been a, a prominent feature of. Uh, the IMF annual meetings since the 2007-2008 financial crisis. And apparently uh, this is embedded in the report, this notion of uh, similar capital requirements for digital assets uh, to traditional financial assets. Yeah, and again, um, very supportive of very rich capital requirements for stablecoin issuers. That makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, it is interesting. You mentioned obviously the the main wild card in this situation right now are CBDC, central bank digital currencies, and what the relationship uh, to from CBDCs to private sector stable coins will be. Uh, what's your sense of what's happening here in the United States and in Europe on the stable coin development front, uh, as well as the potential for CBDCs and how those two might interact? It's a great question, and, and I don't think we have all the answers yet, Ash. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese, I think, have really piloted a lot of uh, their niche, their focus on CBDCs, where you have a CBDC and you have a, a wallet. Um, and, you know, I think you can use a CBDC as, as an instrument of control. I mean, it's, it's, it's programmable and you could come up with a situation where you, you know, have a social score, you have a CBDC, uh, the two reconcile and, and off you go. The key to effective CBDC is privacy. And if you have, the question is, is how do you have assurances around privacy? That therein lies the issue. And I think that's what's gonna be the core challenge in the United States is how do I know um, that nobody is monitoring 
how I'm spending my money and how are they, how do I know that they're not going to restrict the means upon which I spend my money? Um, and, and that privacy issue will be the third rail as, as you know, we start thinking through um, the policies around launching um, such a token. Now, you know, we also have a very robust private market. Uh, again, I, I think private stable coins seem to me like a pretty good deal if, if you're the U.S. government. Because, you know, you have these rules. We talked about having capital-like rules, typically where you have to buy highly liquid either treasuries or hold in cash. You know, governments generally like that. Um, and, and provided that there are safety and soundness and, and, and robust controls around holding those assets, you know, I think that's a very, very nice uh, alternative to a CBDC. Personally, uh, I'm more in the favor of a private solution here. And right. I think time will tell on, on how it plays out. Like, what are our values? And is privacy a value uh, in the United States? Uh, I, think it, I think it is, and I think it should be embraced. But we'll see how um, we'll see how it plays out. It's going to be an interesting path forward. What do you think? Well, it's interesting as you describe it. You almost frame it up as a the private sector CBDCs. Uh, excuse me, private sector stable coins uh, as a bulwark against de-dollarization. Uh, the idea that the government would be very much in favor of anything uh, that preserved and extended. Uh, the dollarization regime uh, as practiced around the world today into the digital asset era. Totally. I, I think if you want to perpetuate the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, stable coins are the way to go. I mean, like I said, if, if you're sitting in a developing world in Africa, Venezuela, would you rather have, what asset do you really want to hold on to? Probably dollars. Yeah. And it also comes down to this utility use case, right? You want to make sure that the assets that you hold, you have, there's utility and you deliver utility. Crypto is oftentimes criticized for its failure to deliver utility. Well, stable coins are, are, are staring you in the face as one of the most um, useful applications of cryptocurrency technology out there. FX markets trade $7.2 trillion per day. It takes forever sometimes, it feels, when you're taking risk for them to settle, like you're trying to settle with yen. Yeah. For me to be able to settle currencies instantly uh, with anyone in the world, it eliminates risk. It eliminates first that risk, which we call it's it's, it's based on settlement. So um, yeah, look, stable coins are bring incredible utility. They're an incredible opportunity, uh, great business opportunity, also yeah. great instrument of national security. I believe, and I really hope we get it right. Yeah, hairstart risk is something you know a lot about from your past life. Uh, but listen, you know the 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 use case for the dollar is pretty clear. Uh, you mentioned places where dollars uh, are currently held in banknotes today in currency uh the idea that folks who are holding banknotes in u.s dollars particularly to protect against hyperinflation when they're uh you know trapped in countries uh that do not have a stable store of value obviously something that would just be immensely helpful uh, and an incredibly important use case chris we've got questions flowing in from the real vision website from youtube uh, let's jump in and take a few of those awesome Okay, first one comes from Manus on the Real Vision website. Will an increase in staking drop the yield? What could impact look like? This is a really interesting question about the supply and demand dynamics awesome. uh, of what's happening uh, right now in the Ethereum space. Uh, it's a really, really good question. So yield is a function really of, of two things uh, within Ethereum. It's a function of the, the number of validators and the amount of, of um token staked and it's also transaction fees so as more validators come online you could see um, the share of those emissions come down so staking yields could come down slightly but the thing about staking is that th there's also a transactional fee element to it 
And so um, if you're a validator, you stand to gain more when there's more activity on the uh, within Ethereum. And so in a way that staking rate is uh, is a function of of of, of the, the 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 amount of activity on the network plus the number of validators. So yeah, if more validators come on, there, you could see that yield come down. But as more activity, as more transactions happen, you could see that yield go up. Great question. Yeah, here's another great question. Uh, this one comes to us uh, from Gary on the Real Vision website. With the current rulings on the crypto space in the U.S., do you have a view on the crypto exchanges such as Coinbase and Gemini? Yeah, you know, we're clients uh, of, of some of those. They, I, th I think like we said earlier, they there's going to be an equilibrium that's established. And so the Coinbase legal team is, is, is very, very good. They're very competent. And when I deal with them, um, they're very, very thoughtful. Um, I'm familiar with their listing process. It's, um, you know, they take incredible care and diligence as they as they go through their analysis uh, across the Howey test, et cetera. And so, you know, we, you know, we are, we look forward to a time when, you know, that equilibrium is reached and, um, you know, hopefully it's done in a very transparent way so that we understand, you know, ultimately as, as they go through this process, we're left with rules of the road that we can all follow. And so, yeah, it's, 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 un, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, we read what everybody else reads on Twitter and um, what we're hopeful for is a successful outcome where there's clarity and, and, and we'll build from there. Boy, this is a sophisticated question uh, from Todd G on the Real Vision website. Why do we need ZK Tech? Uh, and they go on to ask, isn't that doable with a Merkle tree. Uh, by the way, for those who don't know, a Merkle tree is a computer science con uh, construct where you essentially have uh, hashes uh, taking place at the root level, and then you continue to hash those hashes as you move down the tree. Uh, so it allows you to then roll up and know that nothing has been changed along the way. Chris, this is a tough question. I'm glad this one's for you and not for me. No, I mean, why, why is anything you know, necessary in this space? You know, We're pretty agnostic to technologies. We do see a lot of momentum in, in the ZK space. Um, and we will, like you, I think you explained it best, Ash, on, on some of the applicability. Um, we're at the beginning. The technology is evolving very, very quickly. And, you know, we can put folks in touch with some of our technical analysts who get into the weeds on, on the various differences. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're multi-chain in, in our outlook. We think that um, competition is a good thing and, and we're very supportive of any technology that brings about incremental scale, incremental utility, incremental privacy, and we'll evaluate all of those technologies. Um, you know, so I don't have a good answer as far as why do we need one or the other. The question is, is what do they deliver, and and right. and, um, and how can they attract, you know, how can how can they attract true utility and, and deliver uh, value into the space? By the way, I know I'm getting over my skis on this, Taji, but I'll take a shot at it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I think that essentially what uh, Merkle trees do uh, is establish a current state uh, for the existing system that allows you to see whether or not you've had modifications in a past state. Uh, the idea of zero knowledge proofs is that it allows you to ask novel questions about the current state uh, of a blockchain. Uh, but again, uh, this is uh, very technical stuff, and we, we should have someone on to talk about this in a little bit more detail uh, in the future. I find I find zero knowledge proofs to be one of the most interesting, sort of philosophically, uh, as well as in terms of the practical applications for this technology uh, that we see coming down the pike. Here's one from DGen Radio on YouTube. 
this is a question in two parts with two acronyms in it. Uh, how are regulators going to view LSD? Those are liquid staking derivatives, not uh, the hallucinogen. And is it possible that they will see all POS tokens as a security? Yeah. So I really can't stand this idea of LSD, this acronym LSD. And sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot by using it. Um, not only because it you know, can mean something else in other contexts, but it's not a derivative, right? Derivatives are fully regulated. And whether it's crypto or not, like look at Dodd-Frank or Amir, derivatives are regulated. To me, this is not a derivative. When you, um, when you deposit your ETH and you pull out staked ETH, it's not a derivative of the ETH. To me, it's a swap, right? It's, it, I shouldn't even use swap because that means something else in traditional markets. Right. It's an exchange of token for token, right? It's a trade. And to me, that, that it's, not, um, it's not a derivative whatsoever because it subjects you to an entire set of laws and regulations that you don't want to be subject to. Um, as far as proof of stake, right? There's people that are saying, well, you know, since Ethereum migrated from proof of work where miners had to do these mathematical calculations to proof of stake, that's transformed it now into a uh, into something something else, and regulators have issue with that. And we've heard we've heard those those musings um, in different places. Look, uh, from my perspective, um, proof of stake was a very incredible um, accomplishment for the Ethereum community. Uh, it reduced the energy footprint, and and many of the regulators, if you talk to many regulators, you know, around the country and the world, they'll tell you that their top priority is is uh, climate change. That's a fact. That's what they'll tell you. And so that's, that should be very welcome and positive. Right. Um, whether, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah. Whether you, you agree with it or not. Yeah. If you ask them, they'll tell you my priority is climate change. And I've had the conversation with numerous senior regulators. Okay. Well, we checked the box there. Um, and then really it just goes over back to what we were saying earlier. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful to have empirical measures to ascertain, you know, which falls in which bucket. Personally, when you look at Ethereum, I think there's between 400 and 500,000 validators. It seems like it's pretty um, decentralized to me. Moreover, you have futures on Ethereum um, that have been in place for a long, long time, listed in regulated markets called the CFTC. That precedent also helps solidify it um, in the commodities bucket. And then, of course, you have the recent action uh, put forth by the CFTC where they say, wait a second, you know, these five tokens are, are commodities subject to our jurisdiction. So um, I personally don't think that proof of stake subject something based on what I've seen in the open source uh, regulatory space um, to one jurisdiction or the other. Um, let's not call LSD LSD. Let's call it something different. Uh, and to me, it's, it's, it's not a derivative. And so it's such, it's not a derivative. It's something else um, to be considered as such. Yeah. This idea uh, of empirical metrics that can uh, be objectively evaluated to make uh, un an understanding of what is what, uh, in the space is something that's just so desperately needed. Okay, next question comes to us from Amo on YouTube. The question is, any thoughts on DEXs and attempts at regulation? Uh, this, of course, is decentralized exchanges. Chris, what are your thoughts there? It's a really good question. It really comes down to what type of, of a DEX. I think in the derivative space, derivatives are largely regulated. Um, DEX is less so. I think again, you know, we talk about what are some of the challenges of a DEX? Um, AML KYC, right? Should it be the DEX's responsibility to ensure that it's um, that 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 there's AMLKYC, or should it be the users? And I think the first question is, if you look at the Treasury report, is a DEX a DEX? Is it decentralized? Is it truly decentralized? If it is, then it's really the onus on compliance is 
is upon those people that use the system. So um, to the extent something is sufficiently decentralized, it's code, um, hopeful that it is, um, it's, 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 it's treated as such. To the extent something is centralized, obviously those folks that, that control any kind of um, exchange will be subject to law and regulation and they need to, to make sure they're familiar with the, their jurisdiction. Um, at the end of the day, I, I'm very excited about the DEX space. I, I look forward to a, to a world that, that is inclusive, that allows people to access directly into mar directly access markets and to express their, their risk views. Um, but once something is centralized, um, it needs to, to abide by those principles that, that will be expected. So um, yeah, interesting landscape. If, if you look, there's, there's a massive focus. Again, what are the measures that make something decentralized or centralized? Who owns the tokens? Who controls the tokens? These are all things that need to be considered as you look at that. Yeah, final question. This is a big picture one that comes to us on YouTube from wants to comment. The question is this, what will be the impact of Mika final vote this month? Obviously this talking about the regulation for crypto in Europe, uh, a huge and potentially comprehensive solution. Uh, what are your thoughts about the broader impacts of Mika in Europe and around the world? I, I think it's a, I think it's a shot heard around the world. I, I think it's very um, exciting for the Europeans, 27 member states, right? If you look at derivatives, I think it took them over five years. Um, it, don't quote me on it, but it took them years to catch up to the United States uh, in the regulation. Here, you know, they're, they're leading the way. And what's it going to do? It's going to spring the UK into action, uh, particularly in the context of Brexit. Uh, those two jurisdictions will continue to, to try to assert themselves, um, not only as a leader in finance, but as a leader in Web3. And I think they both see tremendous opportunities. So expect to see the, more and more out of the UK as they galvanize to, to come up with a regime that competes, that effectively competes uh, with the EU when it comes to Web3. Um, and then you'll see jurisdictions like Singapore, uh, you know, say, wait a second, we're going to have to have, you know, a regime as well. This is all happening. It, it, it's all happening in, in real time. Um, and again, like we get very myopic in the United States sometime um, and focused on, on some of our challenges. But overseas, I think jurisdictions see the opportunity set. They see, well, you know, this was what happened to us in Web 2. This is we're gonna we're gonna learn from our experience in Web two and really build Web three by differentiating with very strong uh, regulation and, and and policy. Chris, fantastic conversation as it always is when you join us here on Real Vision Crypto. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways. I know we've covered a lot of ground here today. Uh, what would you like to leave our audience with? No, just thrilled to be on, Ash. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, last year was was a was a volatile year. Uh, this year, we're, we're seeing very, very strong momentum. Uh, it feels like market cycles are starting to turn. Um, and despite all of that, again, we're seeing really, really strong building. And so uh, we're staying focused on the long term. We're working closely with our founders to help them navigate uh, any challenges that they face. And uh, we're seeing value accruing every single day. So always an honor to be on. Uh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to have you. And it's great to have you come back on a regular cadence. We really appreciate it. Thanks again, Chris. Have a great day. That's it for today. Remember to sign up for Real Vision Crypto. It's free. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. We'll be having these conversations every weekday going forward. We're very excited about that. And we have some fantastic guests lined up. John Deaton will be with us tomorrow to discuss crypto's fight 
with the SEC. Join us live at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, or 5 p.m. if you're in London. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great day. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 